Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today on Sense of Soul, Dr. Hal Bradley is with us. He has lived one of the craziest lives I've ever heard of. But not only is it insane, it is incredibly inspiring. He is a true soul survivor. Dr. Bradley was recruited by the Mexican drug cartel as a teenager. He quickly moved up the ranks to become one of the top drug smugglers of narcotics in the United States. He then was approached by the Department of Justice to serve as a contractor from 1998 to 2017. He's responsible for capturing many criminals and pay back his debt to society by going on to become a pastor with a master's in metaphysics and a doctrine in Christian pastoral counseling. He has helped thousands of people to find peace in the greatest tragedies and crises. In his book, Crisis Victory, Dr. Bradley reveals the true step-by-step system to thrive under the most horrific experiences. We are super excited to have Dr. Bradley. We also want to take the time to thank him for being of service to our country. Welcome. Uh, it It was my honor to serve this great country, and thank you for recognizing all veterans, every one of us, uh, willing to put up whatever it was necessary to make sure that we could have as we have today. So thank you, ladies, very much. We appreciate that. Absolutely, and thank you. Appreciate it. Can you tell us about Hal as a child? I grew up in a very normal lifestyle. I was a Cub Scout. My mother was a den mother. I was a Boy Scout. My father was an assistant scout master. Grew up in the 1960s here in the Pacific Northwest and uh, a very incredibly normal lifestyle. In 1969, I was at Edmonds High School, which is Seattle, in the bathroom smoking a cigarette. And back in 1969, when you got caught smoking a cigarette, they kicked you out of school for a half a year. So (laughs) during that time, my mother had a friend that had a mining corporation in Durango, Mexico, and they said, well, let's not let him wander the streets and get in trouble. So they decided to ship me down to this mining camp uh, to work in the mines for a year, a little bit longer, actually. But unknown to them, this was a cartel-controlled environment, a village of about 200 people, all were employed by this uh, Mexican mafia family. So in the course of the uh, 15 months that I was in country, uh, my only transportation was a black and white spotted burrow. I used to ride it up in the mountain trails every day when I wasn't down in the mines working. And I would ride it along the poppy fields and I would go up to the Chihuahua Indian sites that were growing marijuana. And uh, this is quite an exposure for a 15-year-old uh, child. During this time, uh, my brother had been wounded in action in Vietnam. I got the call. I was able to get information to that recall. So I immediately came back to the United States, went to the community college, got my GED. And on November 7th of 1971, I entered the United States Army to uh, serve my country and to uh, do my part as a patriot. When I came out of the military in 1974, I took my GI Bill and went to a community college in Sacramento, California. But in the fall of the year, we had a winter break. So I decided to go down with a friend to Durango, Mexico and visit the village that I had lived in for a little over a year. And upon my arrival, they threw this massive feast. They all knew I was there because they always said, aquí en su corazón vive la sangre de la ciudad. And your heart pumps the blood of our village. And during the time that I was there, uh, a friend of mine from the village told me to come down with a bigger car that we could put kilos of marijuana in the car and I could get it stateside for transport and make a whole bunch of money. So uh, because of my youth and my intemperance, I agreed to do it. And 
when I cleared the first load back into the United States, it was absolutely exhilarating. I loved it. And in the course, instead of making $368 a month on the GI Bill, I made $80,000 in one week. Whoa. And uh, so I dropped out of college at that time and just started making runs. And for the next several years, I uh, developed a very large smuggling network from Mexico into the United States. I started meeting other smugglers, other contact sources stateside that were uh, operational in the distribution, moving of the product, uh, developing safe houses, things to this nature. By the end of the late 1970s, cocaine was introduced into the markets. By then, the uh, cartels had a serious eye on me. For one, I spoke Spanish. I was blonde hair, blue eyed. I could move around easily in the United States. So they took me out of the smuggling operation end of it and started developing me to develop a distribution site stateside. And I'd also like to clear something up at this time. At the moment that I walked in, I was not some snitch or informant going out there and walking into the U.S. Department of Justice to tell on all of my friends and everybody. I had tight focus, specific purpose to go after those that were not going to release me, even after I paid them almost a million dollars that I didn't even owe them just to buy my way out of this whole situation. So. That being said, uh, I went on to develop until arrested in 1986, I believe. I went to Folsom Prison, pulled out of there in 89, uh, went to the uh, Washington State, and at that point, uh, had got married, started having children, building a beautiful life. And one day, I got, I got contacted in, in my youth and intemperance. I knew because of my what I had been around in those earlier years that you just don't say no to certain people. So I met up with them down in Vegas and uh, they said, well, I owed, I owed them a whole bunch of money, which I did not, but that's their play. Uh, so I agreed to reestablish the network for them. And by this time I uh, was moving so much cocaine that the Department of Justice had told me that I was the largest cocaine trafficker in the Pacific Northwest. What prompted me to walk in was I had finally made the money that they had requested. I did it in just a couple months. A half a million dollars at the level I was at is nothing at all. It's real easy to do it. So I uh, flew to Culiacan, Sinaloa, Mexico, walked in the door, had a car drive the money down. It was already there when I got there. And uh, I said, okay, my debt is clear. I'll turn over and surrender to you all of my contacts, everything I built. And I'm walking away from this. And of course, they give me hugs and great appreciation and said, yeah, no problem. Well, when I got home, I pull into my driveway and I've got 350 kilos of cocaine and two soldiers out of Sinaloa sitting in my driveway. At that point, being a boss as I was and a respected boss, I uh, told them that there was a heated up situation, get the load the hell out of here and get down south. I had a little over $3 million in cash on me in that moment. And I put the cash inside of the vehicle to get it out of there also regarding a current load that still had merchandise out that I would have to be collecting in. The very next day, I walked into the U.S. Attorney's office and uh, I started going after the specific target that was not giving me my life back. Over the course of 19 months uh, following, I worked almost all of it outside of the United States in very, very sensitive and high profile contracts. By the time the dust had settled, sentenced eight years, I had just had a contract put on my life and a wife that filed for divorce because mm. she told me... I, well, I don't blame her. She said to me, she says, I didn't marry the mafia. I had an idea you were this person. So anyway, I, since I went in and during the years that I was in prison was when I uh, surrendered my life to Jesus, started working on my seminarial studies, became certified by the National Hospice Organization 
And my job in, was taking prisoners through the dying process, which I, for a couple of the years that I did in there, I started getting notoriety from uh, TV, from newspaper media. It was pretty amazing. In that moment and at that time, there were only 11 of us who were certified by the National Hospice Organization. So I started posting in Hospice Journal Magazine and stuff. Uh, it's like to be a hospice counselor in an environment where none of the family, none of the relatives can come in and you know go through their grieving process in association to the level one that they have there. So we yeah. become surrogate relative in a sense mm-hmm. and uh, an amazing journey. But I was able to get my seminarial studies completed. Uh, there was a big feast thrown for me. Everybody knew this wasn't some Bible thumper hiding behind the Bible. They all knew, and I mean seriously knew, that I had come a minister of God through Christ. I was transferred to Leavenworth, and the last night I was in Leavenworth, I worked at the education department there, uh, inmates to go through, get their GEDs. Uh, I plugged into hospice at Leavenworth where they came in and we started training inmates to where we could give them certification in the caregiving instead of leaving a place feeling defeated and going back to an angry uh, resolution to day-to-day survival. That was also at the time the concept of this book came into play. And we're talking, I've been out of prison 21 years, long, long time. But the last night I was in Leavenworth, I was taken in the basement. On the lights, there was this magnificent part has been thrown for Pastor Bradley because they knew they had somebody that was going to be returned to society that was a winner, not a loser. And I mean, we had people that were civilians there. We had all kinds of guards and staff, and it was amazing. It's never been done in history. I have a friend right here in the town that I live in who was actually at that party. It was amazing, and I thank them for it. But upon my release, the bishop uh, that I had been connected to in a Pentecostal order, him and his wife came and met me. Within two weeks, they moved me into the church sanctuary where I finished out my six months of uh, you know required time when you're first released. And during that time, the Department of Justice came to me. I was recruited by them to uh, work in international cases. And they select people like me who are not rats that go and tell on all their friends, because how can an agent going undercover and operational with you on foreign soil be able to trust this man? So I had established and earned the respect of uh, field agents from various uh, agencies under the umbrella of the Department of Justice. And uh, we went out there and we just rocked. Boy, I mean, we took down some real heavy targets, ended up ultimately getting a contract. And uh, I was uh, assassinated in June 7th of this year. Uh, I don't know how I revived and came back to life. I guess from the videotapes, it was about 40 to 50 minutes. In the last strike into my head, uh, as I was laying there bleeding out and dying, it was an amazing moment because as a hospice counselor for, oh, 23 years now, you know, you're there and you're present in the moment of people and their dying experience. But now to have died myself and have come back and regained life myself, the moment of the death when I accepted my death out there as I was losing consciousness, I, I was so grateful and so peaceful and so happy because I knew where I was heading. There was no question whatsoever I felt such a love around me. And even the hitman that was there to contract and take me out, I even had love for him. And it's an amazing thing to say that, to experience that, to fully believe that. But this is also confirmation of a Christian uh, passage and a Christian right of acceptance to that which we become result in his grace and his love for us. So I'm still in recovery from my wounds, but I'm doing so much better today. And Crisis Victory, the book even uh, explains a little bit of the assassination attempt, the recovery as a result of the attempt and where it has taken me and placed my life at this point.
So again, I strongly wow. urge. Yeah, it's an amazing story, isn't it? I'm sure that's like the short version. Can't even imagine if I had hours or days or weeks with you. I mean, I'm already mind blown. I had a friend who we had on last year. Unfortunately, he was wrongly accused when he was barely 18 years old. And he served 24 years and then yes. was released once the guy who really had done the crime had come clean. Praise and God. I know <laughs> he has used that to really help people in the prison because, oh, you know, obviously him. that was his, the majority of his life. More than half of his life was spent in jail. But I wanted to bring you back as like his age when he got thrown into the situation. It sounds like, you know, you kind of did too. It wasn't your choice necessarily to have gone there and got in the middle of this. And it sounds like they really welcomed you and loved you. And it was almost oh, like yes. a second family for you. Do you still, like, are you still in contact with any of them? Were there any that remained your friends or? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. I didn't burn all my bridges. I didn't go out there on a rampage taking down just anybody to look good. I went after a specific target and it wasn't even in that area. And okay. I was laser focused on uh, people that were, you know, I don't even know how much I brought in, but I've been told I probably moved over 50 tons of cocaine up here by myself during that stint of in the industries and I think that's an honest and uh fair assessment now, I have to admit the addict in me was like damn I wish I knew him back in the day <laughs> <laughs> I can remember flying my uh my Cessna airplane in the Sonora Desert with cocaine rails laid out on the cockpit dash and snorting coke while I had a plane full of kilos reckless and yeah. crazy some of that time was I look yeah. back at him with reflection and I think but we all at one point or another experience crisis events Hence the creation of my book, The Crisis Victory Book. We go through so many different parallel experiences, if you will, and where we're in critical phase like your friend. I mean, I really relate to him. I had the faith and the temperance to take that downtime of his life and convert it into something great, magnificent, and is now today helping many other people. Yeah. And God love him for it. I, I, yeah. I mean that, and I respect him for it. I saw that you had to get permission to go into the military you weren't even old enough is that right no I, that is correct it was two weeks after i was 17 i was in fort knox kentucky for basic from there i went over to fort pocasiana for my advanced infantry school training and during that time they had a program there called tigerland and this was a uh, highly experienced special forces green Bray people that were coming out of vietnam and they had them mm -hmm. coming straight to this camp and they were training us and escape and evasion tactics, uh, prisoner of war training in the event of captivity. And as you guys know, I am a survivor from captivity. It was amazing. It was an excruciating training. And after we cycled in February of 1972, it's my understanding the program was immediately shut down. It was very brutal. But what was instilled a survival skill like no other type of training I ever had at that time in my life. And I do believe that it is what's gotten me through multiple near-death experiences over the course of years leading up to June 7th of this year. Well, I had trouble getting through it, but I did graduate. And uh, I went right from there to paratrooper school in Fort Benning, Georgia. And by the time I shipped out overseas, I was still 17 years old. Is it taught us a motivational discipline unlike other people are ever taught to where when events come in our life and later is an international smuggler, the, the many, many years I spent in that world, a lot of that stuff reflected when they attempted to kill me out here in June 7th, 
instead of pulling my head my throat he pushed my head forward to take out the base of the skull which is a knife training technique that you're very familiar with that's when i knew that i was uh going down by a, a highly skilled trained assassin it, it's like i said even when i was fading out there in my final moment of life i uh, i loved him i loved him and i understood i was nothing but a name on a piece of paper it was nothing personal can you share those principles that you learned there the, the 10 mistakes yes that people yes. make yes well of course the first one is uh fear and panic uh, what happens when people end up in an immediate crisis event scenario they will go right into a fear or panic mode because they have now entered a volatile or violent environment of which they have no understanding and what we need to do in the event and what i have done several times in my life facing death in those situations is to be able to take yourself out of that moment we were trained and taught and educated to not go basic natural instinct but to reintegrate another form of approaching the crisis the crisis event uh, and it's very very important another thing is the assimilation of assets what is in your immediate vicinity to survive such an event and what you, can you do to obtain them another is the assimilation of people that are like yourself you don't want to bring people into the immediate circle when you're trying to escape and evade or whatever your scenario may be you want people that have a relative basic commonality to your experience level of life. Uh, also destination points. Say you escape a situation, you have people that are chasing you, their whole intent is to torture you and to kill you drastically, violently and publicly. You, you can't follow the path to uh, where you think you're gonna be going. You need to divert, you need to change, you need to take yourself out of standard natural responsive action and implement a whole nother directive to accomplish your goal site whether it's a destination, another way of life. As you guys know, I'm a hospice minister and uh, I'm also a counselor, crisis counselor. 19 years now working with homeless camps, the homeless, the destitute, the afflicted. I have people that are dropped off on my doorstep, sometimes two or three in the morning, rape victims, beating victims, uh, really, really volatile people going through a high level uh, crisis event. To come from international drug smuggling and trafficking to becoming a true servant of God, like I have now for my 23rd year, 19 of them actively as a senior pastor installed. I had my own church for three years, but I was jumping off on missions at the same time that I was in a pastoral uh, post. So I actually went to my bishop and took a four-year sabbatical because I thought combating the drug wars in that time of my life was more important than uh, being up in a pulpit preaching to my 70 to 80 weekly regular congregants. They all loved their pastor. They understood the mission. 17 years as a contractor for the Department yeah. of Justice. I retired three years ago based on a near-death variance coming out of uh, northern Mexico and having to re-enter into the United States. They had just taken El Chapo Guzman down, a man that I personally knew. And when they got the head of the snake, it splintered the cartels. So it became territorial. And then moving from territory to territory, this is in Crisis Victory, the book, following our natural path to a destination point. Ladies, and I'm glad that you had a chance to see some of that because it gives you a better understanding of sin and also, which is my primary mission point in this meeting today. Anybody can convert. All you have to do is trust, have faith, and strong belief and what happens is it starts revealing itself to you but yes. uh, the moment of my conversion was october 19th 1994 i was in a cell and i just fell to my knee and couldn't take another moment of it and in that moment my cell door was open 
and two prisoners came in. They heard me giving it to God, and each one of them knelt on a side of me, put their hand on my shoulder, and helped me pray all of that evil out of my system. All the anger left. Every bit of that is forever gone. And all I carry inside of myself now and have for over 20 years is a true love for each and every one of you, including the assassin that was here to kill me. These are not lightly said words. These are words that have been ingrained through uh, survivorship of many, many years, several decades. Yeah. But I truly do care about each and every one of you. And I certainly care about your audience. And I just want them to uh, recognize that Cinder Redemption, however hard it may be, is such a wonderful and loving and sharing experience. Mm -hmm. We can overcome yeah, you, you know, you said you had to quiet yourself. You had to find that moment of calmness to quiet yourself. Yes. To God. And I love that because um, a lot of times people uh, kind of will take the word meditation as it's against religion or against Christianity. And for meditation for me is when I am able to quiet myself and listen to God. And then prayer is when I'm talking to God. So yes. I loved that because it's, it's about really just quieting yourself. And for once listening, we forget to do that. What happens in the life that we live, you have to realize in the Bible, if you've studied the Bible, you would understand that the devil and several of his uh, angels were cast down. He was granted uh, dominion over the world, but he was not given control of our free mindset. Taking that into concept, many of us go through experiences and trials and tribulations. Meditation is not a religion or a faith. Meditation is a way of accepting life and calming your soul and your mind to where you can start listening instead of having uh, interjecting thought. Brought that up because many, many times it's been taking that moment to catch my breath, clear the mind, and be able to advance forward successfully and victoriously, if you will, that I know within myself is the one that I need to be accomplishing. So very good, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you for yeah. that. It was almost like you were blessed and correct me if I'm wrong, but to be put in a cell where you're forced to slow down your life and to listen. It was a blessing. Most of the two and a half years that I crammed while I was in there were in dying rooms. And this was my seminary school. And uh, I, by the time I walked out of there, I did a bachelor's level, did my master's within the first year, had it done, completed my doctorate and gone on to do nothing but serve. I've never taken to make a profit or a dollar off my doctorate level degree, which I can do. I'd rather give it to God and give the glory to God and thank him. My base of income and how I've made it most through antiques, I've owned antique stores. I absolutely love the industry of saving history, preserving history, and then passing it on to people that have a similar like scenario as I do. We all find our little niche in life that gives us an, an opportunity to escape temptation, to mm -hmm. escape fear and concern. Uh, we can change the environment by immediately transcending within our own selves the acceptance of where we are and the move from that to where we need to be. Yeah. And again, crisis victory it just outlines all of that so incredibly. I'm really wow. pleased. <clears throat> we now we have an instrument smuggler and a pastor of 23 years that uh, can give guidance and assistance. You know, Shannon and I did an episode on um, soul versus ego, and that's the whole title of our podcast, Sense of Soul, because we really like to teach people the difference between the two, because our world has really conditioned people into thinking success means materialistic things and money and cars and titles and labels. 
And really, we don't ever take the time to get to know our souls and to love ourselves and to teach self-love. And I believe that God is inside of each one of us. So we have to get, if we're not loving yes. ourselves, we're not loving God to the capacity that we should. So we're, we're really all about that. And it sounds like at a young age, you were like, and I've been there. I used to sell drugs and in Vegas in the strip clubs. Sure. Um, and I was young too. And I didn't even realize the harm I was putting myself in. I just did it. But, you know, at the time I was, th that was my God was money, the lifestyle, the adrenaline rush, the, uh, the cars, the house. So I'm curious, what does success today look like for you? What, how has that definition changed? Oh, very much so. And thank you for bringing that point up is a removal of ego and pride, rather acceptance in your faith. Uh, you know, we are told and instructed by the Lord in study in scripture to store our treasures up in the kingdom of heaven. Having antiques and collecting antiques and dealing in antiques is not an egotistical thing to me. One, it's a preservation of the history of humankind. And the other thing is I can make a living from it. And that is the bare essentials of my interest in that. It's not to uh, and surround myself with tons and tons of neat things and brag about them. That's not the direction at all. So I get where you're spearheading with uh, how we need to be analytical with regard to our priorities in life. And I really like that a lot. My treasures are stored in the kingdom of heaven. And every single one of us carry the spirit of God within us. And you're right. We do. When you feel something different, but something good and something sacred is giving guidance in that moment. We have to realize that's a finger of God imparting upon our, our soul and uh, yeah. giving us the guidance and direction that he desires for his glory, never ours. And uh, I can so see I that think, in you. I think for Mandy and I, that our lives really had a major shift when we were able to sense our souls, which is our podcast name. But when we found yes. that God really wasn't outside of us, that... Yes this was inside of us. The love that we were seeking outside of us was already in us. It, yes. And once you can sense that and feel that and know that, everything changes. Nothing in the world looks the same because you no. realize you don't have to seek anything outside of you. You already have it. It's already you. To me, that is confirmation that you do have it. It yeah. is. As a pastor working with thousands of people over the years, you come to know those that under have an understanding, revelation, and an appreciation for the gift that God does give us. And, you know, you become as two as one in his sight. Like when I marry couples, I always tell them that. Now you have completed one another and you're in this holy trinity of God himself. You've just entered into a contract agreement. And whenever we bring the spirit of God within the life or relationship or whatever the situation may be, you will notice that you're not walking through it alone, such as the combative circumstances of people that are affected with drugs or other immoral or other forms of that which inside their soul tells them they shouldn't be in that zone doing those type of things. Once the spirit came in, like what you just explained so perfectly, this is confirmation. And as people start developing and building more confirmation, the trek, the journey becomes a whole lot easier. And it truly does. And other people bear witness to that. And it starts uh, giving salvation to other souls. Yeah, and, uh, that, that's, that's how we do it. That was beautifully said. Thank you. This is kind of like super off topic, but I have to know. You're really putting yourself out there. I feel like you're almost sacrificing your safety. Um, I mean, you were just recently attacked. Uh, are you scared to put yourself out there with this book? I mean, is this, is this your real name? <laughs> 
when I went to strip clubs, we had stage names to cover our identity. So yes. I mean, is it your real name? <laughs> Not only is it my real name, but I've lived in the same place for 14 years and I don't hide that at all. I don't have, like I was trying to explain in the early part of this, I did it in honorable intent. I didn't go out there and just start ratting off a bunch of people to try to establish my gateway out of the uh, prison sentence that was up and coming. I yeah. was very specific. I didn't care. I was ready for whatever mm. when the uh, was put on me and they got me in that moment of letting go of my life. The hardest part, my friend, is when something jump started me back to life almost an hour later and I realized I was back here. And I'm still dealing that with that to this day, even though that happened in June, because I was so comfortable where I had landed that I didn't want to come back to this and struggle. But getting back to your, uh, you know, your question about am I afraid? I'm I'm afraid of nothing. I never have been my entire life because I have an inner confidence in myself. But bear in mind, I am also a highly trained individual. I can sense, detect, or spot now any uh, another approach or attempt. And there have been two more since June. They're well aware of where I am. I'm well aware that they're aware of that. But I also yeah. have other resources to uh, to preserve my life. I had uh, two near-death experiences in my life. And I was blessed to um, see what's on the other side as well. And I think when you do experience something like that, you yes. really don't fear anything anymore. Of course, I mean, I'm not going to say anymore because there's times where, I, you know, I fear for my children. I mean, that's just that, sure. that, that, you know, love I feel for them. But for the most part, like I am not scared of death because like you, I got to see and I'm curious, what did yes. you see and what did you experience? Because I know for me, one thing that was really beautiful that I love sharing is when I was, you know, down on the ground, I had an asthma attack and I had quit breathing. I was protected. Like I, before I was even dead, I was, I was like protected. I, I wasn't experiencing the pain. I didn't know what was happening. I was just fully protected by the light. Yes. What, what I, I've taken over 60 people through the dying process. So I have a lot of exposure to the last seconds of life with so many. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross gave us five stages to the dying process when she instituted the hospice organization in the United States. And once you hit the phase of acceptance, then you become enshrouded in something far more superior than normal mindset understanding. And this is where what you felt of your love and comfort and what I felt in that moment of the dying experience too. Um, but coming back, did you not feel as I did that you didn't wanna leave where we had just been? And I didn't see the tunnel of light. I didn't see none of that. What I did not was say, okay, I accept it, God, I'm on my way. Thank you for bringing me home. And literally that was the last thought I had before I uh, lost consciousness. Yes, exactly the same. I didn't see the tunnel. I've read tons of near-death yeah. experience books. I've joined support groups. There was no light. The first time I had an outer body experience, the second time I actually crossed yes. over. But I will tell you, um, I didn't want to come back either. And I get really excited yeah. when I funerals because I'm like oh my god I'm so excited that they get to go to the other side and people are looking at me like well, she's freaking crazy like why is she all like excited and we're over here crying and I'm like because you, it's just I know I know the the love the oneness that you feel yes yeah. yes this is very true it gave me clarity to the many people that I've taken through the dying experience as a hospice chaplain to uh, have them look me in the eye and say thank you or I love you or God bless you or whatever but it's always a positive moment and within two or three or five or ten seconds they take their last breath pupils spread out and you just know the soul separated 
And I yeah, always it's take, a very uh, powerful moment. I was with my oh, dad when he died, and I yes. and I never experienced such a spiritual process yes. before. It was truly like surreal, you know. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And many occasions, especially in the federal prison hospital where I was at they would be talking names of people's names. So I'd write the names down and I'd take it to the nurse's station after my session with them. And the nurses would call the family and every single time, I'm not kidding guys, every time it was somebody that in their family that had already passed away. Wow. So, and they, yeah, they do come and escort the soul to where uh, the lands, which is of course the kingdom of God. Yeah, so yes, it's really amazing. amazing. Yeah. Isn't that cool? You know, I'm not someone who can do that. It's, it's, I'd be crying. I'd be depressed. So what helps you stay uplifted? Is it the fact that you have the faith of where they're going? I think it's more than that. It's a shared experience with the decedent and their family. Cause after they pass, you have to deal with all the grief of the people that are going to be missing them or didn't close enough doors with them or all of these other case scenarios that come into play. To me, it's an honor. It's a privilege to be in representation of extending God's love to somebody in that final moment of the crisis of the separation from life and for them to have a blessed assurance within. And you can see it in their faces. One acceptance phase, one phases of the dying process, acceptance is everything because then we have clear understanding. We know that our path is now designated and it's not going to change or differentiate. So, mm. uh, and all the people I've taken through the process, it's been an honor every single time. They're in jail. It reminds me of how like some yes. of the COVID patients are alone without the love and support of their Very family. And for uh, COVID uh, bedside last rites over a, a computer screen with family members that would hand me the screen mm -hmm. and put me on there to do last rites. I did last rites over uh, a very dear friend of mine. His wife uh, passed uh, three days ago. And the four days ago, when I was able to be there for the entire family and do the experience, it was very, very, very heartwarming to be able to be there because their grief was developing. And some hours later, she went on to be at the Lord. But mm -hmm. it's kind of pandemics that we come into. These ladies are what we talk about in crisis events, crisis victory. How do you handle in the moment a change, a critical change in life? How do we approach that moment and how do we successfully and victoriously come out of that moment. I can't emphasize enough to all of you, please, please, please get the, get the word of this book out to people. You guys have read it. You understand what I'm trying to say yeah. because it, it connects with every one of us that have gone through some pretty heavy duty life experiences. Well, what about the people that are losing their home right now? Uh, and they don't have, they have total economic collapse. Where do they go for guidance, if you will, or how to crawl out of the, the, the web yeah. of disparity that they find themselves in for the very first time in their life? And we, together, all of us right now in this interview, clearly understand that because of the damaged paths that we have successfully crawled ourselves out of. I'm very proud to know both of you and your history that you shared, because it's yeah. not an easy journey, and anything worth having in life doesn't come easily. Whenever I'm in a dark place or whenever things really bad are happening, as hard as it is, yes. and trust me, I am not perfect at this, but I try to remember to just throw up my hands and say, all right, this is a opportunity to evolve, to 
learn from God. So I'm throwing up my hands and you use the word surrender. Let's talk about that. What does that word surrender mean to you? Acceptance of the scenario that I find myself implanted in in the moment. People that are of the earth and not going in a spiritual walk or a direction, it's cataclysmic to them, as you would well understand based on what you shared with me about your Las Vegas experiences. So you get it. Once we find greater focus on something bigger than we are that we truly believe in, all of a sudden, all of these things tend to unveil and unwrap and the answers come to us because we're no longer the one seeking the answer. We are sharing that with something greater than us that will give us the guidance. So, I mean, I think that my son and most of the people who I shared a little bit would probably freak out if I didn't ask you a little bit about El Chapo. You know, what's interesting is I believe, is he here in Colorado? Is that where his, his sentences are? Some things I'm not really at liberty to discuss, but I can tell you this much. The first time that I met El Chapo, I was at a, I was invited down to uh, Culiacan to a, a major mafia wedding of a high ranking official in the family. So I took my wife down there with me at their request. And this was the first time my wife actually found out what I really was and truly am. So they, they take my wife under armed escort and set her with the other wives respectively across from me in this plaza. And they put me at the table of the bosses. I sat, I was seated with the other lords. Uh, the wedding couple were in front and the middle and a very famous Mexican band was playing that night, cartel owned, but I'm not gonna say their name. Anyway, within a short time, we notice all, we call them soldiers, but there are civilians that are walking around with automatic weapons that protect people like El Chapo surrounded the uh, wedding site and made sure everything's cleared and El Chapo walked in. He came straight to the wedding table, presented the family with the feast, and then he came over to the table of bosses respectively. And at that point, I was first introduced to El Chapo as our trusted friend from the Pacific Northwest. I was down in country about oh, three to four months after that event. They were moving 6,000 kilos of cocaine north. It was already in transit. And they wanted me down there with regard to taking possession of a ton and a half of that coke. It was uh, too much for me to take on within a window of time they wanted it distributed. So yeah, I flew down to Culiacan, picked up at the airport under guard, armed guard escort and taken out to a ranch site. And at the ranch site, the man I was with got a phone call and it was El Chapo on the other end. He happened to say I was there. So Chapo said, oh, bring him up. I got to talk to him. So I was taken up to La Junta, up to a private ranch in San Luis, where I was escorted into the house and taken right into the uh, office room that El Chapo was in. And he, uh, he was very gracious to me, shook my hand, thanked me for taking the time to come and be with him, sat me down and started wanting to know about the Canadian marijuana market. Now, this is 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. So at that time, pounds of marijuana in Chicago were flipping for $6,000 a pound. And what he wanted to do was trade cocaine for marijuana because cocaine cost you almost nothing. And uh, it was an interesting, and I was already moving as a cocaine in that market, obviously. So I had the gateway in, but he was a fascinating strategist. He really, really understood all layers and levels of the business industry because he created much of it. And the Ariano Felix crime family that controlled Tijuana, you probably heard of them. When I was in 1969 in that mountain village, uh, Ramon Ariano Felix was six years old and he used to ride the burros beside me and his uncle was a drug lord uh, that would come up and visit the man responsible for my safety. I had my own guards assigned to me and everything when I was 15 years old. And uh, so 
Ramon would come up three or four days and we would be out burrowback riding along the poppy fields or wherever, you know, we were always under constant eye guard and protection. And lo and behold, 30 years later, he is this massively large drug lord moving about 20 metric tons of cocaine a month through Tijuana into the United States. He's unfortunately, he's been shot and killed. He was uh, killed in Mazatlan, Sinaloa, where I think you guys have a picture of my restaurant and nightclub in Mazatlan. I had a, a business on the beach down there during those years. And, but, you know, as the time ticks on, almost everybody I've known that were truly large narco traficantes, they're all dead. You know, we're, we're, wow. we're at the end of several smugglers that I grew up with and worked with have crashed planes in the mountains, uh, suspiciously got blown up in cars, things like that. They're all gone. It's, yeah. it's been, it's, it's almost a loneliness, but it's also part of the healing and separation from that existence that I had survived in those years. Yeah. How has telling your story offered you healing? That's a good question. Uh, the telling of my story through Crisis Victory um, is to benefit other people, not, not so much myself anymore. I have accepted that which I came from, and I am totally in acceptance to that which I've been for well over 20 years now. Uh, in serious ministry, uh, departmental contractor for the DOJ, all of these things that I've gone through and experienced, acquired wisdom as a result of survivorship and being able to have an ability to pass this on to people like yourselves that are survivors that have made it, that are going to get the word out about it. That's how I take on my interpretation, if you will, of where we feel within ourselves today as a result of those experiences. It's not about us. It's everything is about God and everything is about serving God and everything is being real about it. And we must be real. Everything I've ever shared, I have pieces of paper to prove that I went through and existed in these experiential times. Yeah. I think it's very important because a lot of people tend to fantasize to some extent an experience. And then what that does is that takes out a lack of trust and confidence from the person presenting the uh, conversation. And we certainly mm -hmm. don't want to do that because what we're doing, we're giving God the glory. Everything we do giving God the glory. And if you're not in that path of servitude, then, then you should consider either finding a way to get to that path or find another path. Uh, mm. It's not about us. We're not, we're not looking for attention, guys. What we're looking for is salvation for other souls. Well, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very confident that our souls are saved based on what we are sharing together in wholeness right now. But yeah, uh, no. salvation comes at the sacrifice. Look at Jesus the greatest sacrifice on the world. Yet what did he do in his moment of death? He turned to the thief Decimus on the cross beside him and said, hey, brother, this very day, we're going to paradise. I mean, it wasn't a negative down. Of course, he feared it for a moment in the beginning. What have you forsaken me? But in his final moment, what did he do? He loved another brother and lifted that brother up and assured him of where they were heading. And I just love that. I love that. Yeah. In this okay. world today, as it is, with yeah. the lessons and the wisdom that you've learned through all of your amazing stories and your very adventurous life, what advice would you give to the world today to those of all races, all political parties, religions, and sexes? What would be the wisdom and advice you would offer to mankind? What a wonderful question. I would ask them to just take focus on the only two commandments that Jesus Christ gave us. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses, but the first one is to love God first. So now we have a focusing point of goodness that helps us through our daily trek. But the other one is to love one another. 
And as a guest pastor in many, many churches, these are the two that I constantly bring up in the pulpit and share. And how hard is it and why is it so hard for us to simply love one another? And that, that's my answer, to love one another, but to mean it. Yeah. Thank to mean you. It. And show it by yeah. example, sister. Thank you. I think so many Thank people you. sometimes forget that it's just not about you. You know, it's about us. Absolutely. It's not. It's about us. Very well said. I, I think that what you guys are doing here with this podcast is going to be an amazing recognition, if you will, for God himself coming through us. And I thank you guys for this. Wonderful. Yeah. And I will be praying for you. Our podcast wouldn't be what it is without wonderful guests like you. So thank you. Oh. There's a reason we are on here today together. There's a reason we crossed paths, right? Nothing's coincidence. There is. So if there's someone out there right now who is part of a gang and feels like they can't get out, um, they're worried they're going to be killed, or if there's someone out there that is in a dark place of dealing drugs or addiction and can't find their way out, or is homeless um, and can't find their way out, how can we help? And yeah, what can we do? What's that first step? That's a very good question, ladies. The first thing to do is to allow yourself to be open to being used to them first and foremost. The second thing to do is to listen to their story because we don't learn as we're talking, we learn as we're listening. And once they assimilate into you what it is that they are dealing with, the destructive force that you have a true compassion and understanding to want to hear and have clarity in, you don't make a decision in the moment. I always take at least 24 hours and I pray and I reflect. Now, there are circumstances where I'll have a rape victim dropped off or someone that's beaten real bad or an overdose in one of the homeless camps that I just went into. Uh, there are certain times, ladies, where we have to act in the moment. But for the most part, we don't. And the main thing to do is hear the story, take time to go to God with it, reflect on it, meditate on it, and then you will have clarity because every single exposed moment with someone going through such a tragic event in their life, we realize this, that is not a tragic event in your life. What we have to do is to be able to come close with their necessary moment that they are honorable enough to share with us. And we need to honor that information and act on it only after we've had time to assimilate it into our thinking process. I mean, I, I, I've sat around fires and watched three people share the same needle while a young girl sticks her arm out of a tent ready to trade her for just a $20 shot. And I've had to sit there and not judge, but show them through love and understanding that they are lost in that moment. We can take them out of that moment, but we can't if we start judging that moment or if we start entering into conflict, put an arm around that person, uh, okay. give them a comfort and assurance that somebody out there actually not only says they care but they become the example of caring and right. this is how we proceed forward and god gets the glory we certainly don't we don't want it it doesn't belong to us stop pretending it's not there you know we're so absolutely just easily turning our heads to the pain because it hurts too much to actually know nothing changes unless you actually can acknowledge that pain the beautiful thing about it is when we feel pain and painful in the moment of being exposed to that environment and someone yes. going through that, we have a place to where we know we can give that pain and we can sh uh, shake it off. That person yeah. that we leave, we need to figure out a way to come back to that person and teach them how to shake it off. This mm -hmm. is done by example. Salvation is shown. Salvation is shown. When you know you have it, I see it in both of you ladies, I can feel the information that you are truly saved. 
this is something that they need to feel coming from us and then they can share that i recently had a lady uh, a rape victim that came by and saw me here oh not even 10 days ago nine or ten days ago hmm. and she came by she's now married three years ago the event happened to her they've got a little child both working full-time jobs he was a prostitute living in homeless camps slamming drugs in her arm and letting anybody do whatever they needed to do this is a story relative to all of us but her boyfriend overdosed in that camp i was there i took my nor camp kid out blasted it up his nose i got him back to life and they came by here not even two weeks ago showing me their new life and it was an amazing amazing moment and it gave god the glory not pastor hell god but mm. you know because i didn't judge them because I didn't respond to what I saw that I didn't agree with, it opened a door. And that was rewarded 10 days ago when they showed up here and just gave me hugs and tears and crying and all the love. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for being a beacon of light. I know I was in a place in my life where I didn't feel like I was worthy of God. If I was gonna be real honest, I pushed the source God out of my life because if I invited him in, then I would be forced to change and look at myself in the mirror and I wasn't ready. But yes. I didn't feel like I was worthy. You offer a very warm welcoming. Unfortunately, there are a lot of pastors and a lot of churches out there where people do feel judged. They do feel like they're not welcome to walk through that door. I can't even explain like the love I feel coming from you. Thank you. It's in Israel. It's God. In your intention. So Absolutely. what would you say to those people that have had a bad experience at those churches? Felt like they weren't worthy because religion has put these very strict rules on them that they feel like they broke. And what would your advice be to them? I so love that question. You have no idea. Because <laughs> over the many years of being in pulpits as a guest pastor in several churches, I've had people come up to me and say, this is not a living church. It's a dead church. But I would tell them because they would sit there and question about God. And I'd say, well, that's okay. You go ahead and question because he's not questioning you. God loves you. Even if you deny him or you don't believe in him, he still believes in you. And the main thing is, is getting back to the two commandments Jesus gave us. Love God. Give it to God. Like I did that day in that prison cell so many years ago. And allow God to do his wondrous works through us. And then we start loving one another. You feel the love I have for you. I know you do because it's so real. And it's truthful and it's honest. The people that were in the homeless camp that came by here not two weeks ago, after three years ago when he was dying from a drug overdose, just to show me that they had a great home, a great job, a great family, and life was good. This is what we do. We plant a seed and someone else comes along and waters the seed. But if it's not genuine, like you said, then what you do is you go to another one of the many mansions God has. You seek until you find that which is adaptable to your understanding. But let me be very clear, when a pastor takes his ordination vows, there is a responsibility. The book of Galatians even talks about government and responsibility. So we got to answer to God the Father, whatever we do, whatever we say, in a different way, because we have taken a holy sacrament to be in representation of him. And I pray for pastors like that. I don't judge those pastors. I pray that they will become enlightened and, and heralded by the experience of the trueness between our relationship to God once we get that impartation of the Holy Spirit, which all of us here have. I feel it completely. A shepherd recognizes the flock, ladies, as the flock recognizes a true shepherd. You know, it is done I by example. That. Yeah, and it's so true. 
You know, I, I, I've gone to churches where I have felt that in there, but I don't criticize the pastor. I'll go up and give him a hug and thank him for a service and on down the road to the next thing with about 20 or 30 people following me out of the church going, Pastor, where can I come <laughs> in and, and hang out with you, buddy? You know, hell, we'll sit there and smoke a cigarette and have a cup of coffee. And who am I to judge? The judgment right. is what that's what you ladies have brought up throughout this entire thing. How do we do this? Or how you know what that is? Because you have been victimized by judgment. Take your experience and your wisdom overcome that judgment feeling express not only confidence but be the example of what real love is real love is an absolute clear understanding of how we need to be treating one another as we want to be treated we know this we know the scripture so i I, i'm sure you've gathered by now um shanna and i sometimes cuss unfortunately (laughs) not my place to judge you sister We have this thing on our podcast called Break That Shit Down. (laughs) And now it's time for Break That Shit Down. Father, as we come boldly to your throne of grace, we plead the intercessory blood of your child, Jesus Christ, sacrificed on that cross that day, that his shed blood would spill upon the earth and it would be the sim to redemption that mankind truly needed. And Lord, as we enter into this prayer, we want to lift up each and every person on this planet that you have endowed us with, O Lord. We ask that you impart your Holy Spirit upon them. And we ask in great magnitude, Lord, that they not only become blessed, they become aware. And Father, we want to lift up the homeless, the destitute, the distraught, the many, Lord, that are going through the trials and travails of that which is encamped upon this planet this very day. And we would ask in the holy name of Jesus, Lord, that you would bless and impart each and every one of them. So, Father, we close out in prayer today in love and dedication. We do rededicate our lives to Jesus Christ every single moment and every single day, O Lord. We become the witnesses to the many that are confused and lost, but they see that we walk in another way with another spiritual guidance, and they approach us wanting to know how this in their life. In that moment, O Lord, may you receive the glory. And we would ask of these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You're welcome. It did feel good. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) it, Isn't that a beautiful feeling? You know, we we truly know that God was with us in in Mm -hmm. a moment. And I love you both very much. And I truly mean that when I say that. Right back Um, up. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Love and light. And to you ladies too, be safe on your journey. Give God the glory and the journey will be successful. There's some place that everybody should go to to get your book. Yes, uh, crisisvictory.com. Just look it up online at Amazon. It's an incredible handbook. I strongly recommend it. Awesome. I really enjoyed meeting you guys. You too. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you will come back next week. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate, like, and subscribe. Thank you. We rise to lift you up. Thanks for listening.